Welcome to Singular XQ, the nexus where technology, social science, and art converge. I am Saluda Camp, a founding employee at Singular XQ, and our host is founder Dr. Jennifer Pierce, whom we all know as JP. We are all a part of a new breed of open source consulting, an emerging technology nonprofit unlike any you've seen before, Singular XQ. Singular XQ champions the digital transformation of global society, prioritizing underserved communities. We commit to ethically advancing emerging technology, emphasizing sustainability, collaboration, and transparency. Our belief in meaningful work drives us to equip individuals with tools and knowledge for today's volatile world. We cultivate authentic, continuous innovation through community building, mentorship, education, and research. We celebrate curiosity and foster continuous innovation towards our singular vision of social harmony founded upon digital equity. This podcast is part of our mission to drive conversation and talk about digital transformation with the people who lead and do the work with the same curiosity and passion we value in ourselves. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. Here today in the studio with me, we're honored to have Professor Sarah Bay Chung. Thanks for coming in today, Sarah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. Yes, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I am really excited that I get to press record because usually we have these conversations. And I think this would make a great podcast. <laughs> so here we are today to talk about a variety of things. But Sarah, can you tell a little bit of people a little bit about who you are? You're the dean of AMPD at York University. And what can you tell us about your background, both your scholarly interest and your interest as an administrator in higher education in this generation of higher ed, which is probably one of the more interesting generations to be an administrator in. You know, they, they often say, uh, may you live in interesting times. And I, I, I can say that, that that has been true for me. So, so yes, I'm the, the Dean of the School of the Arts, Media, Performance and Design at York University in Toronto, Canada. Um, I'm also a professor of theater and performance studies here. Um, but my, my background crosses theater, digital media, film studies, um, and various modes of performance. So, my undergraduate was actually in theater and film. I did that in a, a liberal arts context. I started an MFA in directing program and theater directing, did a year of that and decided that I didn't quite know what a career as a director in the American theater um, full time would look like. This was in the mid 90s. And so I, uh, there was a new program at the University of Michigan starting that was a, what we would now call a practice based or a, a practice led uh, research PhD. So it was a combination of studio work and creative work that went alongside, you know, regular, you know, PhD seminars and studies. Um, and so I did that. And, and there I combined an interest in avant-garde, new work and modernism with contemporary performance and a, a number of other things. And, and so my dissertation wrote about queerness, film history, theater history, and um, the experimental writing of Gertrude Stein. So Let's talk a little bit about theater and the digital. Uh, our, like so many things, the COVID pandemic made us think about topics, uh, especially about liveness and live performance, uh, about presence and being in person. What are the challenges that in this aftermath of, of the pandemic, we know that there's been some decline in attendance and, and things of that nature. What are the challenges of the theater goer today in this post pandemic era? So my, my, Friend and colleague Brian Herrera has a, a really wonderful Substack newsletter called Theater Click, and he occasionally publishes, you know, 
um, excerpts from that on, on on Twitter and well, I guess now X and other platforms. Uh, I'm sure he's on on Facebook as well. He has a really interesting one of his most recent essays talks about the challenges of sustaining what he calls the theater going habit. And he outlines all of the physical, cognitive, logistical challenges that someone faces in finding theater to go to in the time, energy, as well as financial resources to get to the theater, proximity, etc. And I, I really recommend it. I think it's a great read. One of the things he points out is that theater critics, right, the people who are paid to attend and write about theater, that these are, this is never part of their experience, that they are provided with tickets, they essentially have their schedule of what they're going to see set out for them. And much of the friction for the average theater goer, or theater attendee is removed. And so that kind of perspective is never part of their uh, of their experience but it is for for, for Brian who writes um, certainly writes as a as a critic but not in a journalistic professional venue the the one thing I would add to to Brian's really excellent um, analysis is that it it also ignores where theater is uh, it's true that theater is in particular physical locations and that our proximity to those physical locations determines a lot of the kinds of shows that we think about seeing, you know, so if you pass a theater on your way home from work, you might keep looking at what shows are there. If you are, you know, part of a theater community, there might be friends of yours. So there's like a social proximity to different theatrical performances. So you can think about a geographic physical proximity, also a social proximity. I think I would say that in that social proximity, we might also think about familial proximity. So the, you know, if you were someone whose parents took you to, so I grew up in Sacramento, California, my parents took me to music circus every summer, right? This is, you know, musical theater performed in the round under a big tent. Mm -hmm. um, it's really quite lovely. Some plays do real, you know, shows do really, really well in that context. Others, it's more challenging. Right. So, so there becomes a kind of social, habitual, familial proximity idea of like, oh, it's summer. So what are we seeing at music circus? And, and it becomes again, a kind of, a kind of habit. And I think a lot of those habits were in place prior to the pandemic. And then of course, with the global shutdown of venues that, that stopped. But I think where you have geographic proximity, social proximity, and in large part, familial proximity or those kinds of habits, mostly in the commercial theater, you've seen theater return. So, you know, a lot of the kind of touristic, you know, family oriented, familiar intellectual property, familiar titles, kinds of shows come back, Shakespeare, um, musicals that were popular before, before the pandemic. Um, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child played here in Toronto quite successfully for a number of months. Hamilton, which had been interrupted, there was a, a, a Toronto run that was supposed to extend for, for several months in, in um, early 2020. I think it ran for, I don't know, maybe three weeks before everything shut down. I actually got to see it here before the, the pandemic closed it, but Anyway, it came back and it, it, I think it was doing, it was doing fairly well. It's really the, the not for profit sector that has seen the biggest challenge. And I, and I think that there is one other area of proximity that has really affected it. And that's digital proximity and digital proximity is similar to geographic and social proximity in its, in that it's what you see. 
right? So if you think about Instagram as a place where you are or where you exist in the same way that you think about your neighborhood or your family or your social, uh, you know, in, uh, IRL in real life, social connections, those kinds of media spaces are also places where you encounter things that are new. Uh, it's where you get ads. It's where you get, you know, where algorithms tell you what friends you should be paying attention to, what posts of those friends are most, you know, are most salient. And of course, all of that is based on um, on an algorithm that is designed to adhere to or to follow the the preferences that you have already expressed. So, you know, if I say I like this kind of music and I and I don't just click a survey and say I like this kind of music, I listen to that kind of music and I listen to certain tracks over and over again and I I skip other ones. All of that becomes user data that informs what a platform like Spotify or Apple Music thinks I am going to like. So when Apple Music puts together playlists for me, it looks at the music I've already listened to, it assembles things that are the same or similar. And of course, and then it can find out very quickly if it's right or wrong. You know, like, do I actually listen to those songs or do I skip them or do I rearrange it or do, you know, how do, how do I, how do my preferences and data play out? One of the real challenges for theater and live arts in general, so dance, um, but also different kinds of music. So small venue music, not-for-profit orchestras, for example, um, things and, and types of events and genre that are not in, do not kind of have familiarity in, in IP and may not have physical proximity or social proximity or familial proximity. They also don't have, have digital proximity or data proximity, which is to say, if you've never been to the symphony, Instagram is never going to send you to the symphony and they're never going to play ads for the symphony. And one of the other challenges that we have on the theater side is that a lot of our work again in live arts is not actually consistently categorized and quantifiable across different genres and, and modes. So for example, if I, you know, if I want Instagram to tell me what theater to see, Instagram may not, or any of those algorithms, Google search is another one or TikTok may not also recognize like what is theater in my, in my area. So I might get, you know, I might get theater kids hashtags of, you know, students doing uh, some of their work in, in class, I might get um, a movie theater that is having a, uh, a special. I might get, um, you know, a, a kitchen sink drama, but what I really want is avant-garde. And maybe that the people who are making that work, they don't even think of what they're doing as theater. They think of it as performance and that gets registered in a whole. So there's a kind of semantic diversity and, and ambiguity that, that then can translates into a kind of data ambiguity. So I really do wonder how much people are getting when, when, when we're so becoming so accustomed to cultural environments that are data proximate, that are digital proximate, that are fed to us. Like we literally call it the social media feed, right? There's no effort. You know, we've gone from search to feed. Like I used to go out and look for things, right? If you sort of think about those words as metaphors. And now I just sit there and somebody stuffs it in my mouth right? My cultural consumption is a, is expected to be a largely or is constructed as a largely passive exercise. So what am I being, what am I being fed? What am I, how am I expressing those preferences? And where is work that I might like, or I might not like, and how do I get to it? 
Um, and what we find, um, and I, I, I wrote a couple of social media posts about this recently, but one, of, I think one of the big challenges is that in many cultural domains now, the more work art I consume, the more I am exposed to work that I like. So if you think about, you know, Netflix, the more shows I like and that I watch, the more Netflix knows what shows to recommend to me and, and gives to me. And so I, I, I get to look at that. The exact opposite is true for live theater. The more theater I see, the more I am likely to see things that I don't actually like because there is such a diversity of work and because it can be very difficult to figure out in advance what kinds of shows I'm, I'm going to like. Like, you know, I might love one production of Sam Shepard. I might really dislike another. I might, you know, think that I, oh, I, you know, I, I hate everything by David Mamet. And then someone does a really imaginative rethinking of, of David Mamet. And so that's actually a show that I, that I rather like. I might think that I like things that are, are, are non-narrative and, and experimental, but I might see a work that is not particularly good. So there's, there's this kind of, uh, again, generic uh, ambiguity, data inconsistency, and given that the the cost of live arts, not just in terms of the money, but also in terms of the effort and time and labor and logistics and planning investment that is needed in order to get there, I think we're I think we're seeing a really unfair, unbalanced kind of rivalry emerging, which is for so much of our digitally delivered cultural content, we expect high quality, high content for free and or very low cost. So, you know, like if I'm willing to, to, you know, to deal with some ads, I might, I never have to pay for commercial music again. Like any, I can, I can listen to any song I want as many songs as there are more than I could possibly consume in the rest of my lifetime. If I were to do nothing else than listen to music, so long as I'm willing to, to, to listen to some ads. And if I'm willing, if I'm willing to pay a small subscription fee, you know, say 12 to $14 a month, I can listen to um, I can have access to unlimited music with no ads at all. There is more on Netflix that I would probably enjoy watching that I can consume in my lifetime. And more is added every day. Uh, the, the same is not true for theater. And in fact, um, it's a high cost for low volume. I don't have the same kinds of assurances that the work that I see and like that is going to be a predictor of and, a, and an indicator that will steer me to more work that I see and like. And so I think that's part of what we're seeing with the with the breakdown of the subscription model um, across many genres, right? We've we've got you know people people want to pick and choose what they like, um, but I think we're also seeing a lot of people who the the effort and labor to get to the theater for something that that costs a lot in terms of time and money a risk in terms of whether or not they're going to enjoy it. I think that's becoming an increasingly different, difficult value proposition. And even what we consider to be quote unquote, low cost theater, right? So $10 tickets, $25 tickets. When you remember that 25, uh, you know, seeing a show that might last two, two and a half hours for $25 is two months of unlimited content on a platform, you know, subscription streaming service. I, I think the value proposition is, is presenting a lot of challenges in, in garnering new audiences and therefore in supporting new work and new artists and trying to figure out how to get people to be willing to take that risk at a scale that's going to sustain our, our theaters. It sounds almost like you're narrating the death of commercial professional theater. 
Uh, do you think it's that dire or do you think that there's some hope on the horizon that this could be rethought? I think if there's any challenge, it's not actually to the commercial theater. It's mm-hmm. to the nonprofit, not-for-profit theater. Regional theater. I, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there's different kinds of, I mean, so it, it looks different in different, in different places. So mm-hmm. in the States, yes, we would say regional, regional theater and, and, and not-for-profit. I don't, and you're certainly seeing, I mean, Looking Glass Theater, you know, canceled half its season, mm-hmm. Mark Taper Forum, uh, you know, the, or the LA Theater Center, um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, so I mean, these are major, successful, highly regarded, you know, regional theaters in the United States that have been extraordinarily successful and have been responsible for some of the, uh, the best work that uh, has been generated uh, in the last 50 years in the American theater. Yeah, what marks um, those particular companies, just for, for our audience who may not be deep into theater, is that they are um, places where new work has been generated and new artists get uh, their start and has been a real crucible for that kind of work. So it's, it's quite a blow, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, but Broadway... So far as I am, the the most recent data that I've seen, and again, I'm not I'm not as up to date with it as as perhaps some others are. Um, I think is actually doing okay. So I think there's I think I actually think there's a bifurcation between commercial theater and and not for profit um, regional theater in the United States. Um, we don't have regional theaters in the same way in in Canada. I mean, we certainly do. They tend to be more. You know, we didn't have the um, the League of Resident Theaters. You know, the Lord um, that that the states developed. It's a, it's a very different model here. There is more public funding in, in Canada, but mm. you know, not in the same way that there is, for example, in, in the EU. Um, I was just traveling in Europe this summer and, and talking with some friends and, and, and live performance is in fact coming back in many, in many places, um, at least in, in Northern Europe. I was talking to folks in, in the Netherlands. It, it appears as if theater in Berlin um, is also doing is, is also doing quite well. I haven't seen stats coming out of the out of the UK recently. I think that would be the other other place to 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 look. But but the thing that makes me concerned here in Canada and and again in Toronto, um, which is you know I think inarguably Canada's largest theater city. Um, although there's some really interesting work happening in Edmonton and Calgary and certainly in Vancouver, um, as well as in, uh, in, on the East coast, like Halifax has a really growing, thriving, um, artistic and theater community now. Um, and, and has historically as, as well. I don't mean to, I don't mean to no, 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 uh, disrespect to the Nova Scotians, um, <laughs> or anyone in the Maritimes. Um, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting, interesting work happening there. And certainly in, you know, in Quebec and Montreal, you know, work continues to be really, uh, you know, to do some really exciting stuff. But, but I do think here in Toronto, we're seeing smaller audiences and, mm. you know, I think companies are really, um, trying to strike a balance between the familiar, uh, you know, things that people kind of know what they're going to see and, and the new. And I think it's a very difficult time to be a, uh, you know, to, to be a new company, for example. And so I don't see the same kind of, you know, opportunities, uh, for, for new strange work. And I think that that creates a certain kind of conservatism, uh, in the, in the, in the field and, and, you know, and a, and a familiarity, um, to try to replicate some of those, you know, those areas of proximity that I talked about previously. You know, you asked if I see any bright spot on the horizon, I would say the the bright spot is education. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
have you seen any evidence of theaters experiencing or experimenting with what, what we would call digital or sort of the blending of physical and digital content? Um, and, you know, businesses are struggling with similar problems uh, that you d- described about uh, location and proximity. And, you know, the, the answer has largely been to start investing money and time into omni-channel content production. Do you see any examples of people who are learning to sort of uh, sort of blur the distinction between the digital and live theater? And are they doing it in a way that, that is optimistic for um, getting over some of the problems that you've seen in the nonprofit theater world that we've been discussing here? Um, f- for sure. Uh, so they're a wonderful artist and and uh, producer and 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 also theater professor Michael Wheeler who teaches at Queen's University he collaborates a lot with uh with folks at 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 York particularly you know Laura Levin and and the folks in in the in AMPD we have the Sensorium Center for Digital Art and um and Technology um and so we've done collaborations with them we have we have a a a, a pretty large research collaboration with 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 queens anyway he runs the festival of live digital art or folda which this year was um in largely in person um so they've done they've done you know kind of digital stuff in the past they've done hybrid stuff this year it was in person but it it looks to combine so there's like you know vr and video games performances and and lots of kind of cool stuff i know um from talking to some colleagues that the builders association is is continuing to kind of work in this, in this, in this way and develop, um, new ideas around hybrid, um, performance. I think VR performance is certainly something that we've been experimenting, experimenting with. My colleague Ian Garrett does a lot of work in this, in in this respect. He took a whole group of students to Edinburgh this summer, um, who were then, you know, there was a team based back here at York in Toronto and, and a team. And so they ran the performance simultaneously sort of using, you know, across the two, the two spaces from Edinburgh and, and Toronto. So I think those are, those are really exciting, um, exciting opportunities. So I do, I do see that as, as part of it. I think we're still pretty early in that, in that space and we don't yet have real infrastructure or, or clear support or clear, or, or frankly venues that are designed to support it. Um, and I don't know if, if we're going to have the resources to renovate existing theaters or create new kinds of performance spaces or, you know, do those kinds of things to, to create the spaces that are, that are purpose built for those kinds of engagements. Yeah. I mean, it seems almost too like when you describe the illegibility of live arts and data regimes, like you described it so well with how um, Instagram is not going to send a person who hasn't been listening to classical music to the symphony and, and they're not going to even be aware of it in their digital world or their um, their little, uh, you know, sphere of, of influence and concern on, on social media. Um, but it's almost like uh we understand that there's the event of the live performance, but then there's also the way it performs leading up to the event and then after the event. And those things seem really ripe for uh, digital products that could, could uh, 
travel different barriers and find adjacent interests to them. So I'm excited to see how people start to adopt these practices. And I also hear a little bit of a, an SEO crisis, which is search engine optimization. The way we do that is with keywords. And you mentioned the semantic difference, right? Um, and, and, and SEO becomes really hard when there are semantic ambiguities. Um, but I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while after this conversation. I really um, sparked a lot of different ideas for me. Let's uh, take a swerve into generative AI and performance. What are your thoughts? about what's happening in generative AI. Uh, you, and we get a double whammy with you. We can talk about higher ed and ed tech and the arts. Um, and so I w- let's first talk about uh, the arts. What, what, what do you see going on in, in performance and theater and generative AI? And do you see it as a threat or a, an enhancement? What, what, what do you see happening? As best I can tell at this point, and I think we're still pretty early in how these things are being developed. And, and I know that things are moving very fast fast. So it feels like, you know, people need to really jump on everything very quickly and figure out how to, how to use it, how to monetize it. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 th- I think generative a- AI is a double-edged sword. I really do. Um, uh, I can see, you know, the, 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 where I think the dangers are is for anything that is routinized. So any any kind of creative activity that is habitual, right, or 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 routinized or formulaic, it seems to me that that is at is at best a kind of AI is a generative AI is a is an augmentation, and at worst a replacement. And I think it depends on on how much something is routinized or how some how much something is familiar. You know, the the kind of nightmare scenario that I can envision is is a little bit like an updated, there used to be an, an uh, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon from the, the late eighties, early nineties. And it, it, in the first panel, there was a, a classroom with a, you know, in-person professor talking to a bun, you know, to a, a room full of, you know, in-person students. And in the next panel, one of the desks had a tape recorder. I think if you remember micro tape recorders, when they, you know, kind of hit the market in the late, mid late eighties, mm-hmm. a micro tape recorder sitting on the desk and the, um, and, and the professor. And then in the next panel, all but like two desks have, have these little micro recorders as opposed to students. Mm-hmm. And then in the last panel, there's a boom box. This is how, you know, the era is like the late eighties, early nineties. There's a boom box sitting on the teacher's desk and a, and a micro tape recorder at every, at every desk. Right. Mm-hmm. So this, this idea was was that you know why should the professor show up to talk to devices you know he would record the device it was uh, i think very much gendered as a he and uh, and the devices would record it and so so the the learning environment this was like you know kind of the joke or the fear is that the learning environment had become a wholly mediated one in which devices talk to devices rather than people talking to people mm-hmm. where i think Generative AI as a taking that as a metaphor might become problematic is that if you think about spaces like marketing um, right now, and you just mentioned SEO or search engine optimization, one of the goals with SEO is, is humans figuring out how to talk better to machines, mm-hmm. right? So when, so a search engine is is a is a computer program or a series of interconnected computer programs 
designed to create a certain kind of function for a human end user. Then when people are, are, are want things to be found, there are humans who are trying to manipulate the inputs, the data, in order to be more findable, more attractive to the, the machine, right? The computer program that is searching for it. It's the same thing when people talk about like, you know, playing to algorithms on different platforms, right? You know, like figuring out who to follow likes, you know, at what percentage do you get bumped up to, you know, do you come up higher in the algorithm? All, you know, all of these kinds of things, right? So, so like there's this, you know, we've had for a while with social media and, and particularly with social media marketing and digital marketing, you've got a whole bunch of humans who are working really hard to try to create content that is appealing to machines because it is the machines who will act as the intermediaries to the audience as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, unidirectional television, where it was just who could pay the most, you know, like you bought the most TV ads, your stuff got in front of the most eyeballs, you win, you know, it didn't, it didn't, you know, it was, it was great if the content was really good, but it didn't, you didn't have to make the content good in order to get the eyeballs, you just needed the money in order to put it there. Now, now, now the content needs to be good. So that it seems to me that the most logical place for generative AI in a creative space is in is in advertising and marketing like why would you why have humans trying to figure out to talk to, how to talk to machines when you can if you think about that final panel from the classroom when you can have machines talking to machines yes. and surely the ai is going to know what content can be generated that is going to appeal to the other you know ai search bots that are rolling out there yep i worry a little bit about that kind of effect coming into our classrooms where, you know, a classroom and a, and a, uh, you know, and a marking scheme is an algorithm and you've got, uh, you know, a series of expectations set by the, by the professor or the teacher. And then you've got students trying to figure out how to talk to them. Well, with all of the conversations about faculty increasingly using, you know, the potential for using generative AI in marking and then students potentially using generative AI for, uh, for content generation, you know, at what point do we have machines talking to machines? And that's why I actually think the, the, for me, the best response or the antidote to both of these things is, uh, is the human connection mm -hmm. and to make that, to make that the, the measure of assessment. And so I think that in-person learning, I think in-person collaboration, I think in-person experiences, I think things that are visceral and human and relational um, have the best chance of succeeding. The things that are not formulaic or automated and that things that are automated probably will be. Um, and maybe, maybe we could say that they should be. So what is the, it's going to require us to think differently about our, our courses, differently about our assessments, but also to kind of think back to that New Yorker cartoon, to think very deeply about the human relationships. I think that's as true for education as it is, as it is for the arts. Um, I think my most optimistic view is that, uh, that live art becomes a, a luxury item, that it becomes a kind of exceptional experience that is worth investing all of the time and energy and, and money that it takes because it is treated as something really precious in uh, in a world in which so there's like an overdose of, uh, of digital content. Um, yeah. What you describe here with machines talking to machines, that cartoon is great. I got to see if I can find it. That has already proven harmful to the neural nets 
themselves because it's almost like when you record a recording of a recording, there is a degradation of the quality of what's produced the more it's uh, responding to machines rather than humans. So this sort of human um, interaction is still crucial, at least with this mode of artificial intelligence. I'm not saying that they would later not be able to correct for what we're finding in this sort of degradation over time. Um, they're starting to notice because now is the first time that we've been able to study their performance over longer periods of time. And the quality does drop off quite a bit. And and one of the mm -hmm. theories is is just how how much is it listening to other machine-generated content? Um, also, I've, I've just been doing a critical read of the movie War Games, and it's it's so it's so prescient that movie, um, and also to realize that a lot of what we're seeing here has been a capability that's been around for decades, uh, forty years, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's just the size of the language model is the thing that took us by surprise, right? That that we've had the ability to conduct this kind of reasoning going all the way back forty, fifty years, but the the way that we've been able to teach the machines, the speed at which we can teach them, and how it's been impacting outputs, it was uh, very surprising uh, indeed. But it's really not that far away from what we were already capable of doing. It took, I think 1997 was when the computer beat Kasparov, right? The chess player. Um, and um, was that, was that when, was it Deep Blue? Yep, that deep, the, yeah, exactly. Deep Blue from IBM. And, um, and so it's, it's a very interesting moment. I want to ask for your comment on this. We were just talking about this last night. So, uh, we got fascinated at Singular XQ about the Bezos memo. And if, if for people who don't know what that is, Bezos, banned PowerPoints and the way they conduct higher level meetings is that the person facilitating the meeting prepares a structured six part memo that they all have agreed to what the format is. And then at the top of the, of, of the meeting, they spend a half hour in silence reading it. And then everybody responds to the author of the memo in the meeting. And we were fascinated by hmm. this because I have shared with my team that when I was teaching, I got over, a, I did reverse teaching in the sense that we did our homework in class and we took our tests at home. Um, because I realized the students for, for good or for ill, a lot of my colleagues were harshly judgmental of me for this, but the students were not reading on their own. There's a lot of reasons for that, that we don't have to get into here, but some of them are just practical. Students today are not the 1950s students living in, in a hermetically sealed Ivy environment. They have jobs. Some of them have children, family responsibilities. So, um, you know, finding the time to read and the quality of the class went through the roof and it was exactly the same thing that Bezos had realized was that when people distributed the memos before the meeting, people pretended to have read it. And that that meant that the quality of the conversation was was dubious at best, right? So um, so uh, we were talking about this activity. Um, and I said, you know, I can outsource uh, the agenda and the minutes of this meeting to chat GBT for us. But I process what happened in the meeting better if I write about it. Uh, so what my concern is, uh, I'm thinking of the Hegel and the master-slave dialectic. If we become slaves to uh, AI to do particular tasks for us that we used to have to do on our own, we're not going to get the benefit of doing that. The benefit of writing the memo and writing the notes uh, on the meeting about the memo is the processing that takes place more than the actual document itself. So what do you think about the fact that uh, students are not going to be learning to research the same way that we did, for for example? They're not going to be learning how to um, 
uh, do an outline on their own without assistive technology? What's going to be lost uh, in this in this translation in education uh, when we start using these? Because we can't stop it, right? <laughs> it's it's here to stay. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a good question, and, and you know, in some ways, I feel you know, I, I I feel like any answer at this point is premature. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been so much rush, it seems, around around AI, you know, rushes to to judgment, how to use it, assumptions about how it will be used, how it will be misused. You know, I, I, I am concerned that so much in our in our higher education system tends to go immediately to the punitive. In other words, like how do we make people do the right thing and, and which has in, built within it a kind of assumption that they are not doing the right thing, um, which is why I kind of I reflect back to that human human relationships, which I see is so key to everything that we're, you know, working on and as core to, um, to the educational enterprise. I, I don't disagree with you in terms of, I think there is a benefit in learning how to do things for lack of a better word, um, by hand, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that in, you know, there was a story, I think it was in the New York Times in the early 2000s, mid-aughts, um, about the fact that sort of tech folks in Silicon Valley were all sending their children to Waldorf schools. For those who may be unfamiliar, Waldorf uh, forbids any use of technology uh, throughout, I think at least at this point, still the first eight years. So through eighth grade, you know, children are not to use a computer, to have a mobile phone, um, to use a word processor. There is a high uh, emphasis on on physical tactile creation. So um, full disclosure, um, both of my sons um, did uh, the, their latter primary school in uh, at Waldorf and you know, they, they built stool. One of the assignments was to build a stool and they used no power tools. They built the stool entirely. Like, they, you know, they cut wood, they planed it, they sanded, they created, you know, intricate joists, um, joints, um, entirely without power tools. So no drills, no, no power saws, like everything was done entirely by hand. They, they knitted, they felted in, in, in second grade, you, you know, you learn to work with beeswax, um, you know, there was a, um, they made their own books. So they learned calligraphy and, and wrote, um, and did watercolors and did math. I mean, they did algorithmic, you know, uh, rudimentary binary math, uh, by hand, right? So figuring out, you know, how to, uh, so I, I found, and there was a lot of, you know, singing and running around outside. And I think it's really interesting that a completely that, you know, for folks in tech, that they would send their their own children into a completely non-tech environment, right? It's kind of like that there was a similar kind of story about Steve Jobs forbidding his kids from using the iPad when it first came out. You know, I think I think we have to remember that, you know, humans are are still relatively young in our development, that there are lots of things about our connections between our minds and our bodies that we are still discovering. Um, one of the things that I have found is that I can only listen if I take notes and I can only take notes um, if I am, if I am writing or mimicking writing. So I, I will frequently take notes on, on my iPad, but in long form as opposed to typing. 
And I encourage my students to turn off their computers in class and to write in longhand, which is incredibly difficult. After about five minutes, they're like, my hand hurts, right? In part because they yeah. haven't, they just haven't done it. Those muscles aren't developed. Yes. yes. But, but we- those kinds of connections are, are, I think, I think, I think much more important than we think. And so I, I do think there is a kind of need for fundamental, which is why I actually am quite optimistic about a school like mine, which is overwhelmingly studio-based. Okay, why don't you take it from, that's why I'm optimistic. Okay, I think it's off. I'm so sorry. They do this periodically and always no when I have no something like this going we've on. Got, we've got a lot here, but I would like to finish this thought if if, that, if we can. If that in the background, I think uh, Brogan can probably get rid of. Okay. At that level, um, so I'll just, yeah. let me just finish this last thought. So I'll, I'll say, um, I think that's why I'm, so I'm optimistic about uh, a school like mine that is overwhelmingly hands-on, uh, in-person, uh, making and creating and doing in, in collaboration with others. And I do think that, that theater, uh, although the, the, the professional theater, I think is quite dynamic and likely to change. I actually still am very devoted to theater education because I think it is such an excellent foundation for so many other kinds of work, both in different kinds of media forms. So playwriting is a foundation for screenwriting, I think is an, is an excellent uh, foundation, um, but also the kind of craft of building, of collaboration, of in-person connection and negotiation. We've seen our students be successful as, you know, VPs at Deloitte and in a, in a range of project management because they know how to bring things in on time and on budget. In Deadline different sensitivity of, is my biggest right. argument about if, if you meet somebody who's been in theater, they've delivered things on a, you know, pinpoint. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's very true. And, yeah. and so I think, you know, in the same way that, that I, I, you know, that the tech folks, you know, saw the value of, of, of Waldorf, um, and that kind of very hands-on education as being a value, even in a world dominated by digital. Uh, I think a similar kinds of, kind of education is really beneficial in the arts, mm. regardless of whether one becomes a professional artist or not. And I think that that given the kind of dynamism that is happening in different industries right now, that is the real key component. And so I think we're going to see a resurgence of arts and science. Um, certainly there is a need for robust communication in and better communication skills and tools um, in and amid the kind of, you know, digital algorithmic haze. Um, I, I think understanding, I mean, story remains really fundamental to how we connect as human beings, you know, like most things, there's everything kind of moves in, in flows. So we're in a, you know, in a hyper digital moment, but we know that when anything becomes the dominant, the things that are in scarcity become precious. And so we will see a, you know, uh, I think a, a kind of balancing, whether there will be the kind of social, political, physical, you know, city infrastructure uh, to support those kinds of connections, to help young people not go down really destructive rabbit holes on their phones, to find modes of, of, of connection and optimism. 
you know, I think those are the real challenges for the next several years. Yes, I agree. And um, I, we at Syncubags Q really value the fusion of art and technology. And we actively seek people who have advanced degrees in humanities and social sciences, because we know that that is actually, you know, the old joke is, is, you know, science can teach you how to clone a dinosaur egg and humanities teach you why that might be a bad idea, right? So, uh, and it's definitely true in technology today where we're having to think through some very, very hard social problems, right? That that um, that we need to, to take a very careful and historical viewpoint on. Um, those of us yeah. who know the history of, of media evolution understand what certain things look like. That's great. And the other the other analogy that we, we made the other day in dis- discussion, I said, well, the calculator did not replace the mathematician, but we were very careful to make sure students weren't allowed to have calculators in class in learning fundamental math, right? It's only when you get to it, you've mastered that and you get to advanced math that they allow us to use calculators and things of that nature. So yes, no, this is not going to replace people. We know that that writing is always going to be important, that researching is always going to be important, that this is an assistive technology. But we also were very careful to, to uh, make sure that our children learned how to do ciphering, as they say, or <laughs> mathematical calculation outside of of using a a, a calculator. So there's a time and a place. Um, So thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. And we're going to say goodbye now. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about, a a pet topic or any kind of upcoming events that that we can talk about now? Nope. I'll just say thanks so much for, for, for having me. We're really looking forward to what will be a very exciting start to a new academic year uh, starting soon. So um, thanks again for, for having me. Okay, thank you. And I will see you again next time at Singular XQ. Sounds good. Thank you. Singular XQ is a nonprofit through a partnership with fiscal sponsor Fractured Atlas. Public support for our work is crucial for our continued ability to openly share research, thought leadership, and open source code for emerging technology in the digital commons. If you also share a concern for our future and understand the value of a robust digital commons to ensure that emerging tech drives equity instead of creating deeper inequity and would like to join us in building a more humanity-centered future, you can help us by writing a review of this podcast, subscribe, and share. Also, like, share, and subscribe to our LinkedIn page or at our website. Our Patreon page is published in these show notes and can be found on our website and through our presence on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Discord. Consider donating or sponsoring and spread the word. Curious people who care really can change the world. This is Saluda Camp. Thanks for listening to Singular XQ, the podcast. Bye now.